0: You are listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students. All right. So, hey, so we're in this series, uh, and I think there's a slide for it actually. We're in a series called Turning Points, right? right? And we're going through the book of Joshua, and the whole thought of this—this uh, this idea of turning points—is really where we're at. If you—if you know uh, the Bible, and even if you don't, like that's okay. But basically, where we're at is the people of Israel. So the nation of Israel is in a massive like turning point. In their lives, right? So they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are now about to inherit the promised land. They're about to go and conquer the promised land. It is uh, book of Joshua is battles and battles and battles, and what you're actually going to notice, and we talked about this last week, is the book of Joshua is not just about battles, but the book of Joshua is about how God is faithful to His promises. By how God is faithful to his promises. And at every turning point in your life, whether it's a massive turning point or whether it's just a slight turning point where maybe some things have changed, you need to remember that God is faithful to his promises. That God has never started something that he will not complete. And he has never said something will happen and has not followed through. So we're actually going to continue on with this in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 2, moving right along... So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just going to kind of have a, go ahead and read this a little bit. So basically, what's going to happen though is Joshua is getting ready to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. I think about this like you are one of the people of Israel, and you've been wandering in the desert for forty years. Okay, forty years. Forty years is a long time. In the desert, like. I have to be honest like I'm tired of standing outside when it's hot outside after 40 minutes. Okay? you alone 40 years. And what you're seeing is that these people are now about to go into something that 30, 40 years prior they actually were too afraid to go and do. Right? But what you actually notice is over those 40 years is that as some people died and a generation raised up and you see this new like generation that has been raised knowing the faithfulness of God, what you see is that, okay, I think they're tired of desert time and they're ready to move forward in obedience. And it's amazing how the desert will bring you to be obedient, right? How A lot of times, you know, we're curious why we're in these desert seasons sometimes, and oftentimes it's disobedience. And where we learn to be obedient is in the desert. Because I'll tell you this, if you can't be obedient in the, in the desert, then you'll never be obedient in the promised land. So the, what's going to happen, though, is they have to go and they have to conquer these places. They, there's people who are living there and they have to conquer these places. And the first city that they're going to co, come up against, let me see if any of you know it. The first, what's the first city that they're going to come up against? Jericho. Maybe some of you have heard the story of Jericho. We're going to talk more specifically about the story of Jericho in a few weeks. But Jericho is a massively fortified city. I mean, I'm talking walls on top of walls. right? And what Joshua does is Joshua sends two spies to go in and spy out the land. See, so Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, the sending of spies to evaluate the land, uh, especially before battle, was a common practice, right? We see this. Where else do we see this in the Old Testament? Speak. You got it. Abraham and Lot, kind of, Yeah, the 12 spies that went into Canaan, right? Where where Moses was like, all right, he picked 12 spies. And what he does is he sends them to go check out the promised land, this exact place, right? Go check out the promised land and tell me what you see. And now Joshua is doing the same thing, but there's a difference here. Because right? in the previous scenario, Moses publicly sent these 12 men out, publicly sent them out. And when they came back, they publicly reported to everyone what they saw. But notice here that Joshua sent two men secretly. secretly. And it's interesting because if you know the story uh, of those 12 spies, one of them was Joshua. And what happened was, of those 12 spies, when they went into the promised land, they came back, they're like, hey, it's amazing, it's perfect, but, like, there's people in there, and we can't fight those people, we can't beat those people, so it's not worth it. But Joshua was one of two that was like, no, we got this. Like, God has promised this to us, we got this. And what happened was, the whole assembly of Israel listened to the ten rather than the two. That's a whole illustration in and of itself. A lot of us like to be in the ten rather than the two, right? But what we see is that Israel obeyed the ten, and what happened when they obeyed the ten, they disobeyed God, and because of that, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. So when Joshua has the opportunity to do this again, notice that he sends two men secretly. He sends them secretly. The word secretly here literally means to be deaf or to keep quiet. It was a secret mission. They were to go, repent, Find out what they could and report it specifically to Joshua. Imagine being these spies, right? You're, like, you're about to go into a place that you had never been to before. Without a doubt, this is a mission that you know if you get caught will cost you your life. You have to swim across the Jordan River, which is a feat in and of itself, which we'll talk about next week. You have to swim across the Jordan River. You have to approach this heavily fortified city. You have to get into the city, and you have to gather information, get out, get back to Joshua, all without getting caught. So what do they do? Continue on, verse 1. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So upon arriving to the city of Jericho, they come and they lodge at a house of a woman who was a prostitute. Now the Bible makes it very clear that they did not go to her house for the reasons that you would go to a prostitute's house, okay? I like that's not why they went. They didn't go there for that. Rather, her house was within the walls of Jericho, so it provided a perfect place to go. It was a quick access point. It was an easy way to escape if they needed it. There's a lot of questions in the past. Maybe you've heard this. People like to say that Rahab was more of a, of a of an innkeeper uh, than anything. Uh, what they do is they're trying to, like, elevate, you know, Rahab to not being what she is. But the Bible is clear. Rahab was a prostitute. She was not an innkeeper. And she wasn't running a bed and breakfast. She was a prostitute. Okay. And any And what we like to do is we like to take people in the Bible, and especially people who God uses in amazing ways who have a Rough past, what we like to do is pretty them up a little bit more so that we can kind of elevate them. You know, like I don't like her being a prostitute, so I'll make her like running her own Rahab's bed and breakfast, right? But that's not what it is. The word uh, prostitute that is used in the Hebrew literally means an immoral woman, okay? Rahab was an immoral prostitute in every sense of the word. And any attempt to make her into something else would be dishonest with the scriptures. All right, the spies enter her home. Because it was a great place to gain information. Then we keep going. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you and who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Our spies are not, uh, not very far into their very first spy mission, and then they get caught. Like the Bible tells us they were spies, but it doesn't tell us that they were very good spies. Right? They go, and they immediately are found out. If you think about it, like Israel hasn't had to do this. like These men have never spied before. All right, They're just kind of going and doing what they know how to do. But it is clear that they get caught. And when the king of Jericho hears about this, he sends men to Rahab's house. They're like, hey, bring us those two men that came to your house. Keep going, verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And the gate was about to be closed at dark. The men went out. I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had uh, laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. But Rahab is caught in a difficult position, right? Rahab chooses a common pagan practice called lying okay she lies she lied in an effort to protect her guests now here's the thing like and there's a lot of people who will question this and here and because here's the thing like like Rahab protecting the spies was an amazing thing that she did but I will tell you this that Rahab did not have to lie as noble as her intentions were lying is a sin And just because God used her in spite of her sin does not mean that it is a pass for us to just go ahead and just go lying all the time for God's glory. Okay? That is not what we are seeing here. Because I'll be honest with you, we probably missed out on a miracle of what God could have done if she was honest. But why would she lie? Why would she risk her life for the sake of these two men that she has never met? Knowing that all the while that she is not what we would call a, uh, you know, a very moral person. Like, why would she choose to do this? And in ancient Middle Eastern cultures, it's very important that we know this, that it was a massive priority that was placed on the responsibilities that a host had when someone came to your home, okay? Even to this day, if you go to the Middle East, if you visit someone's house, you are treated like royalty, Right? They treat you like you are the bee's knees. I remember uh, I went one time, uh, I got, the first time I got the chance to go to Israel, we were walking through Nazareth. It was pretty late at night, and there was a woman that, like, looked out her window, and she recognized one of the people we were with and, like, invited us into her house and, like like, made us drinks and, like, all this stuff, and I was, like, uh, thanks. You know, like, like, you know, I'm like Southern hospitality in my mind. I'm like, no, no, ma'am, I don't need that. Thank you so much. But no, she's like, she's like going for it, right? She's like, like, wah, 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 wah. she's like calls her little son. She's like, how about you? Because she didn't speak English. I do not know, right? And she calls him in and he goes and he's like a little kid and he's like getting glasses of water and, and all this stuff. And it was juice. and I don't know what the juice was, but it, it was delicious, right? And we just hung out for a little while. But what you see is there's this massive priority on if someone comes to your house and they are a guest, you are responsible for their comfort and their life. But so I think that's part of the reason, but I actually think that there is a deeper motivation for why Rahab protects these men. We'll get to that right here in verse 8. See, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For, your, for the Lord your God, he is a God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What a statement. There's a lot to unpack in Rahab's statement. If we were to dive all into this, we'd be here forever. And you guys don't want that. But one thing I find amazing is notice that Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Notice that when the 12 spies went uh, 40 years earlier, they were scared to death of the people. Right? They were scared to death. They're like, "Mm I ain't going in there. And notice is now when they go back 40 years later, Rahab's like, look, I know this place is yours. Somehow this woman, this prostitute Rahab, had knowledge of what God had promised the Israelites without her being a part of the Israel nation. She knows of the promise of God to his people. Now, it's most likely the case that she did not know the specifics, right? She probably didn't know the specifics of it. However, there was a general knowledge that God was with this group of people, so much so that the people of Jericho were terrified. Terrified. What were the reasons that Rahab gave for her understanding? Why is it that she understood that the God of the people of Israel is a God not to be played with? Why is it that the people of Jericho are so terrified? She goes on. She, she says this. If you go back to verse 10, she goes, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Notice, what it is that makes them terrified of the people of Israel is that they had seen what, and they had heard about what God had done. Notice, she's like, we've heard how God split the Red Sea for you. Remember, that was 40 years ago. But word travels. Like they didn't even have Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, like Fox News, CNN. They didn't have any of that. They just word got around, and they knew. Yo, did you hear about the Red Sea? What? Are you serious? Right. And also about this. It's millions of people wandering in the desert, and just doing work on people. Okay. Like 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 you've you've heard of them. And guess what? Now they're camping on the other side of the river. The God that literally split a sea and his people. And who's next on their list? You. People were terrified. They were, and Rahab acknowledged who God was because they had known of the stories of what God had done for the people of Israel. And a side note: never underestimate the power of your testimony. Never underestimate what God can do with your life and the life of someone else just because of his faithfulness to you. Sometimes people need to see God's faithfulness in the lives of other people before they can appreciate his faithfulness in their own life. The people of Israel were a walking billboard of God's faithfulness and his power, and they didn't even really realize it. They've heard about the Red Sea drying up. Think about it. This is an event that happened 40 years earlier, and they still know about it. They know how God has been with this people, and they knew that anyone that stood against them did not stand a chance. What was it that made these people understand that Israel was the real deal? It was God's presence among his people. God's presence among his people had set them apart in the eyes of everyone around them. Their peculiar ways, their different lifestyle, the way that God had made them different than everyone else around them is what pointed others to the God that leads them. What is the result of this? Rahab goes on. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab confesses faith in this God that she's only heard of. And I think a lot of times we think that, you know, it takes great faith for us to get saved. You know what? No, it's not a great amount of faith. It's a little bit of faith in a great God. That is what saves us. And notice that Rahab confesses faith in this God that she's only heard of. Now I'm going to say some things here that I think you need to hear. Notice What led Rahab to confessing faith in God and ultimately her salvation was nothing that the spies said. It wasn't eloquently stated arguments. It wasn't how many social media followers they had. It was the peculiar life of the Israelites that elevated Rahab's knowledge of the goodness of God. She saw God working in their life and others, and it it led her to placing her faith in God. And you need to know this, that as long as your life looks like Jericho, no one in Jericho will want your life as long as your life looks exactly like the world that you are called to reach, no one is going to want what you have to offer them. No one's gonna want it. I'm tired of hearing Christians justify their silly lifestyles. And how they do is they say, well, it's not a sin. Or the Bible doesn't say it's a sin. So I can do whatever I want with this area. And what they do, and and what they do is they justify their actions, even if it's something that is a sin. Just because the Bible doesn't explicitly say so, da da da, is a sin. But if you actually are like intellectually honest with yourself, and you know it's a sin. But well, what we do is we justify our actions. If the only reason that you act the way you do is because quote the Bible doesn't say it's a sin, that shows that you care nothing about the souls of other people, only your own. Why? Because people need to see a Christianity that sets them apart from the world. I need to see that what you have makes a difference. And then we are shocked at why people aren't more attracted to the gospel we present when we look no different than they do. We look no different than they do. And how do we do this, right? And I'm talking like living a life that is set apart, living a life that is above reproach, living a life worthy of the message that you bring. How do we do this? How do we, what ways do we see Christians justify their actions the point to where they are not a peculiar people set apart for God's glory? How do we see this? Well, I'm going to be specific. We see Christians who use profanity and then they justify it. Well, the Bible doesn't say that that particular word is a sin. It's our culture that makes it a sin. Well, you know what? If the culture makes it a sin, then maybe you should respect the culture. And be set apart from it. And what what I find fascinating is that the same people that say that cursing isn't a sin for a Christian are the same people who won't dare curse in front of me. Why is that? Is it because I'm a pastor? Or is it because you're being a hypocrite? Now, I'm not saying I've got this figured out, too. Somebody cut me off in traffic. Okay? Like, I'm not saying I'm perfect. But we see Christians who want to live like the world so badly, sadly, that what they do is they live their life by the code of not what will bring God the most honor and glory. They live their life by the code of how close can I get to sin without sinning? And then they wonder why they're totally ineffective. Want to know why I don't curse? Want to know why I don't use uh, recreational drugs that I could easily justify if I wanted to? Want to know why? Here's the thing. like The Bible doesn't say it's a sin to drink. The Bible says it's a sin to get drunk, but I don't drink. Not saying that I'm super great, but want to know why I don't drink? For a few reasons. One, I don't trust myself with it. Two, because I want people, when they look at my life, they don't see the hundreds of sermons that I've given. I don't want people, when they look at my life, they see all the Bible studies. I want when people look at my life, they see that God is worth me saying no to lesser things. Even if I could have it, I choose to stay away from it. Why? Because I want people to see that God makes a difference, man. Not because I'm great, but because he's great. And you know what? And I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. It's not something I feel in bondage to. And what we see is a lot of Christians, when you tell them, hey, you shouldn't do this because of the way it's going to sh- come across to other people, or do they say, you're being legalistic? You're being legalistic. And you know what? Maybe you should be careful every time somebody lovingly rebukes you to just say that it's legalism. God is worth you saying no to lesser things, even if you think you'd justify it. Why? Because maybe someone's soul is on the line because they're watching your life. You're the only Bible they'll ever read. And if God isn't worth you changing the way you speak or the way you dress, then maybe he's not worth me putting my faith in him. Matthew 5, starting in verse 14, you are a light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it on a basket, under a basket, but they put it on a stand. It gives light to all in the house. In the same way, listen to this verse. In the same way, let your light shine before others, and then we stop there. Let your light shine before others. Oh, that means I'm going to do a lot of Bible studies? I'm going to tell people about Jesus? I'm going to light shine. I'm going to show everybody how good I am, how holy and right I can be. What's the rest of the verse? Why do I let my light shine before others? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice, why do we do the things we do? So that people who see our lives may desire to glorify God because of what they see. We want people to be saved. And if that means that I gotta say no to things that I could justify saying yes to, then see it. I'm cool with it. Fine. 1 Corinthians six twelve. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Stop hiding behind our self-righteous laziness and understand what a set-apart life can do in the hands of an almighty God. Understand that perhaps there is a Rahab in your life that is observing your lifestyle. And it could be the thing that shows them that God is or isn't worthy of it. In the case of Rahab, she determined that it was. She placed her faith fully in this God that she had only heard of. And what did her faith lead to? Verse 12, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, also will deal kindly with me, my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Her faith led her to plead for the safety of her and her family. She is saying, hey, because I've been kind to you, please be kind and spare me. She knew why they were coming. And they weren't coming to make friends. They weren't coming to have a play date. They were coming to kick some tail and take some names, okay? They were coming to wipe them out. She knew this. She says, please, I know I don't deserve it. I know I am a prostitute and probably the last person that you would think, like, would do this, but I don't deserve it. I, all I can say is, please, save me. What happens? Verse 15, the men said to her, our life for yours into to death. If you not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. and She said to them, go into the hills, for the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. Then the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours. Listen to this. We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. We shall be guiltless. But if a man is laid on any, sorry, but if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in your house, his blood shall be on our head. If, but if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord into window. There was three things she had to do to ensure her safety. What were they? Tie the scarlet cord, keep everyone in the house, and don't tell anybody. Right? Rahab's cry for salvation was met with acceptance. Two spies promise that she will be protected. And notice something that notice that it is the spies who establish the means in which she will be saved, not Rahab. We live in a culture, in a day, in an age where people want to be saved, but they want to determine how they'll be saved. That's not how it works. We live in an age where people want peace. They want salvation for their souls. They want these things, but what what they really want is they want to be the one that determines how they receive it. And no, 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 my friend, that is not the case. What would have happened if Rahab would have told the spies, "You know, I like your idea. Bring out." No, she was in no place to bargain. hate to break it to you, but we do not determine how we are saved. That is something that has been established by God. There is one truth. Despite what culture may want to tell you about truth being relative, there is one truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus. So the spies then report to Joshua. I'm almost done. Spies report to Joshua. They departed. and they go into the hills and they tell Joshua, look, the people are freaked out. We got it. Let's do this. The spies return to Joshua, they're encouraged, and they're ready to go into what God has prepared for them. But here's the question, you're like, what happened to Rahab? Well, if you skip ahead, Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 through 25, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. But basically, what they do is she's protected. And then not only is she protected, but she, she and her family end up actually becoming a part of the people of Israel. If you continue on, if you follow the Bible, what you find is that Rahab is like the great, 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 you know, a lot of greats, grandmother of who? Of Jesus. Notice how God took a prostitute in a pagan land. Hold on. Took a prostitute in a pagan land who was not deserving anything. And through her, and her line, became the savior of the world. And I'll just side note. Don't you ever allow your past sins to determine what God can do with your future. Ever. Ever. So, what do we do with this? This is a great story. There's two things I want you to hear from this. One, the punishment of sin. If we read stories like this in the Old Testament. There's a natural tendency for, in our hearts and all of our hearts to dislike some of what we're reading. When it comes, and especially when it comes to God commanding the killing of people. Like how could a good God do that? Like, how could God be perfect, and how could God be loving and merciful, all the while command that these people get wiped out? When we read these stories, you no, know, it's it's kind of natural to think that. I mean, look at the text. Look at what it says, right? This is in uh, Joshua chapter 6, where they, in, they go into Jericho. It says, then they devoted all of the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. They wiped out everybody. Not everybody, everybody. They left Nothing. Why would God command people to do this? This is where we need to understand something. You need to know this. God always punishes sin. Always judges sin. Here's the deal. God wasn't simply using violence to fulfill his promise of the land to them. He wasn't saying, all right, promised land, here you go. Ooh, there's people here. All right, here's what we're going to do. He's going there, and you just let them have it, right? I got your back, okay? You go in there, smack them down. They shouldn't be there in the way. That's, that's on me. I got it. Whatever. Uh, but that's not why he's doing this. God doesn't just kill people because he likes a different group of people. What's going on here? See, while God was keeping his promise to the people of Israel, he was also using the armies of Israel as an instrument of judgment upon wicked, sinful people. Deuteronomy 9, verses 3 through 5. Read this. this is God talking to them about them going into this promised land. He goes, Know therefore today that he who goes out over before you as a consuming fire... The Lord your God will destroy them and subdue them before you. You shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. But why? Here, hold on. Verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or your uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And they, uh, that he may also confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, the people of Jericho and all the inhabitants of the promised land were wickedly evil people. And God judges sin. Keep in mind also that the cities that Israel's conquering, they were they were they were they were, they were basically military outposts. Jericho was only about six acres in size. It wasn't very large in the span of how much room it was. It was a military outpost. So it's not like it was a civilian territory where there's like, you know, mommies going to the grocery store with their babies in a, in, in, in a, in a cart. No. Okay, this was a military outpost. Joshua Butler, in his book, Skeletons in God's Closet, wrote this. says so cities Israel takes out are military strongholds, not civilian population centers. So when Israel utterly destroys a city like Jericho or Ai, we should picture a military fort being taken over, not a civilian massacre. God is is pulling down the Great Wall of China, not demolishing Beijing. Israel is taking out the Pentagon, not New York City. Also keep in mind that God gave specific instructions on how this was to be carried out. Why? Because this battle was God's battle against sin, not simply Israel's battle for land dominance, right? People of Jericho were not, Innocent victims among the sins. Uh, see, the people of Jericho were not innocent people. Okay, I think we need to understand. Like, the people of Jericho were not innocent people who, des- you know, that, like, oh, they don't deserve that. No, here's just some of the sins that were going on in Jericho. Pay attention. Okay, I know there's things distracting. I'm almost wrapping up. Pagan worship, gross sexual immorality, child sacrifices, which included burning infants and burying them alive. Rejecting God, although they had clearly heard about him, and many, many other things. There's a reason that the one person that we get to know who we seem to be a good person in there is a prostitute. Rahab was just as deserving of this as, the, as all of them were. It was because of sin like Rahab that God was destroying this place. What you need to know is this, that like God hates sin. I don't think we understand this enough as Christians. We live so comfortably within that we forget how much our God hates it. Leviticus 20, 23, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all of these things, and therefore I detested them. Zechariah 8, 17, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all of these things I hate, declares the Lord. And how can you claim love God while you nonstop actively act in the things that he hates? Like, let me give you an example. If you came, like, like, and you wanted best friends, I'd be like, all right, like, work on that, right? you become good friends. I want to be good friends with you, but I need you to know this. I hate your wife. And you just go on to tell me how much you hate my wife, but you want to be best friends. Guess what? We ain't friends, boss. Okay? We're not. Why? Because the thing I cherish most in this entire world, you hate, and that can't work. But what is it that God hates more than anything? He hates sin. And you cannot to have best friend relationship with Jesus all the while you're doing exactly what he hates know this that because God hates sin God will judge sin you see in the old testament judgment for many sins were carried out in the moment right like if you did this sin like boom judgment boom judgment right and the people of Israel going in and wiping out the promised land they were God's judgment against those people and oftentimes the army of Israel were instruments of God's judgment so here's the logical question why doesn't God judge sin today why doesn't God judge sin today very easy for us to look around at all the evil in the world, and you don't have to look very far, look on the stage, and I'll tell you issues that I have, but we ask, why doesn't God judge the sin in our world today? We, 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 like, where, where's this God of justice that I've heard about when there's racial injustice, right? or where there's sexual abuse, the stories that I have heard of children being abused, where's justice for that? Where's this God that judges? You see, God enacted judgment in the moment back then, but now judge stored up to be revealed all at once. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. hear what I just read? Why God's not judging the evil sin around you? Because those people are stacking up wrath for themselves one day. That's terrifying. You see people living in open rebellion to God, thinking they're getting away with it. And may some of you in this room, living in open sin, thinking you're getting away with it, but you need to know that you're not. Not. This, the only thing more terrifying than sin, is God's judgment upon it. And Rahab understood this. Rahab knew that God was going to judge Jericho for its sin, and she wanted no part of it. This understanding led her to act. She knew who God was, and she was sure of it, and her righteous fear of him led her to place her faith in him. And what does faith do? We see one, let's see, we see the punishment of sin, but we see also the power of faith. While it's terrifying reality that we cannot forget, we see that there is incredible power in faith. Because while we are deserving of God's full wrath, the gospel tells us good news. First John 1:9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, the first step of faith is repentance. The first step of faith is repentance. If you have never come to the point where you've acknowledged that you are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, that you deserve God's wrath, if you've never come to that point and you said, God, forgive me. I don't deserve it, but God, forgive me. I am a sinner. If you ever come to that point, I hate to break it to you, you have not placed your faith in Jesus. But here's the beautiful part. There has never been anyone that has come to Jesus and God, and he turned them away. never been someone that's come to Jesus and and he's turned them away. When you place your faith in God, he forgives you. And that wrath that that is coming one day, guess what? Jesus took it on your behalf. Because when Jesus hung on that cross, he didn't just die just a heck of it. He died and took the full wrath of God for every sin upon himself. And he drank that cup of God's wrath until there was nothing left. So that when I place my faith in him, I'm saying, God, I don't deserve it but I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Faith takes the assurance of judgment and wrath, and it turns it into the assurance of mercy and grace. Rahab ends up, not only is she forgiven, she becomes a part of the people of God. This woman who was a prostitute, who did not deserve the grace of God, who was lined up, ready for judgment, placed her faith in God, was forgiven of her sins, And was accounted as a blessed woman who ended up leading us ultimately to the coming of Jesus. That is amazing. There is not a sin that God cannot forgive. Not a person who is too far off that God cannot bring in. You have never sinned to the point where God has said, can't do that one. God is, you know what, here's the thing. As much as you may think that your sin is powerful, not more powerful than the forgiveness and grace of God. You need to know that. There's great power in placing your faith in God. We're just going to it's yeah, a little bit of time. I'm going to like 15 maybe 20 minutes cuz it's like 8:15. Thank you again for listening to the Central Students podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net/students.